1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
2: The University of California, San Francisco, pays NetWalker extortionists nearly a million and a half to recover its data— a Kashmir utility restores business systems after last week's cyber attack. The website defacements in Ethiopia continue to look more like hacktivism than state-sponsored activity. Our very own Rick Howard talks about wrapping up his first season of CSO Perspectives. Our guest is Sanjay Gupta from MeTech, discussing how online marketplaces can balance security with biometrics, data are exposed at an e-learning platform, three prominent cyberhoods go down in US federal courts, and Lion says the beer is flowing post ransomware. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman in for Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, June 29th, 2020. The University of California has decided to pay a gang that infected, quote, a limited number of servers at its University of California San Francisco unit with NetWalker Ransomware, Computer Business Review reports. The university said the encrypted data were, quote, important to some of the academic work we pursue as a university serving the public good. We therefore made the difficult decision to pay for a tool to unlock the encrypted data and the return of the data they obtained, end quote. The public good claim appeared to suggest that COVID-19 research was impeded, but Bloomberg, which put the amount of ransom paid at $1.4 million, says the university maintains its work on the virus was unimpeded. The BBC has an account of the negotiations between UCSF and the gang, in which the extortionists explicitly threatened to release stolen student information. There was an extended negotiation between the criminals and the university. The initial demand was for $3 million, but UCSF succeeded in getting the amount knocked down to a million and a half, with the extortionists eventually settling for slightly less than that. Payment, and even post-negotiation for the NetWalker operators, was, of course, made in Bitcoin. The university is working with the FBI and other law enforcement agencies on the case. In India, business systems were affected by an unspecified cyber attack against the Jammu and Kashmir Power Development Department, but the Kashmir Observer says the utility is well on its way to recovery. The most prominent of the affected systems had been the utility's bill-paying app, which was unavailable to customers along with certain other online services. Power generation and distribution were apparently unaffected in this incident. In an update on last week's cyber attacks against Ethiopian targets prompted by an ongoing dispute between Cairo and Addis Ababa, over Ethiopia's construction of a dam on the Blue Nile, Quartz reports that there's still no sign of any connection between the hacktivists and the Egyptian government. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, GERD, has been under construction since 2011. Most of the attackers claim to be adherents of the Cyber Horus Group. Their activities have, for the most part, involved website defacements. One of those affected the homepage of a regional police training center. It threatened war for the Nile and uttered a pharaonic curse upon Ethiopians. The hacker left messages on the homepage of an Ethiopian regional police force training center threatening war over the Nile and a pharaonic curse upon Ethiopians. Most of the hacked websites included the pharaonic imprecation, quote, if the river's level drops, let all of the pharaoh's soldiers hurry and return only after the liberation of the Nile, restricting its flow, end quote. The pharaonic iconography is there in images the cyber-horus group used to mark its victims' pages. A skull wearing a pharaoh's headdress, two skeletal hands clutching a knife and a sickle, crossed bones beneath it all. Imagine a Middle Kingdom version of the talking skull on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland, the one that chatters, Dead men tell no tales, to distract you just before your boat drops down a flume, and you'll get the effect. In any case, the UN is seeking to broker negotiations among the three involved countries, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan. The hacktivism seems, in Quartz's view, to be having little effect, if any. VPN Mentor has discovered an exposed AWS database belonging to OneClass, a Toronto-based e-learning platform widely used in Canada and the US. VPN Mentor says the database held 27 gigabytes of data, totaling 8.9 million records, and exposed over 1 million individual One Class users. One Class, which secured the database upon notification, says the data were on a test server and bore no relation to actual individuals. VPN Mentor believes, to the contrary, that the database did indeed hold information on students and lecturers. In the world of crime and punishment, some fairly high-profile criminals received their sentences last week. Sergei Medvedev, a Russian national and one of the leading figures of the Infraud organization Carding Gang, known for their swaggering slogan, In Fraud We Trust, copped a guilty plea Friday in the U.S. District Court for the District of Nevada to charge a RICO conspiracy. In-fraud did a lot of damage, the U.S. Justice Department says, the gang inflicted actual losses of $568 million. Krebs on Security reported Saturday that Alexei Borkov, formerly of St. Petersburg, Russia, and one of the admitted bosses of Card Planet, got nine years from the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. It's a stiff sentence for a guilty plea, which led some observers to speculate that Mr. Borkov didn't give the prosecutors much. And one of the hoods who faced the music was an American, Kenneth Curran Shukman, who received 13 months in club fed from the U.S. District Court of the District of Alaska. Mr. Shukman was sentenced to his role in creating the Satori Botnet, one of the more troublesome successors of Mirai. And finally, the beer is flowing again from the Lion Brewery to thirsty customers in Australia and New Zealand. Gizmodo says the beverage firm, they also do juice and milk in addition to beer, has restored operations to the ransomware attack it sustained earlier this month. Some of the better-known brands the company produces include XXXX, Tuhi's, Little Creatures, and James Squire. Lion is a subsidiary of Japan's well-known Kirin. The attack Lion suffered was from the R-Evil gang, which usually steals information as well as rendering it unavailable. Lyon said in an update on the incident it issued late last week that it didn't think it had lost any data, but it was properly cautious. Quote, To date, we still do not have any evidence of any data being removed. As we indicated last week, it remains a real possibility that data held on our systems may be disclosed in the future. Unfortunately, this is consistent with these types of ransomware attacks. End quote. Our evil has threatened, according to security affairs, to release stolen data. Pay up, they told Lyon. Otherwise, all your financial and personal information, your clients, and other important confidential documents will be published or put up for auction. End quote. Our guest today is Sanjay Gupta, who is VP and Global Head of Product and Corporate Development at Mitac. He sat down with Dave to discuss how online marketplaces can balance security with biometrics, and also the unnerving practice of creating synthetic IDs. Here's Sanjay.
0: I think people know there's been a lot of data breaches over the last few years. So there's probably hundreds of millions of records that exist out there. But additionally, as people, you know, they die and and their data is still available, these fraudsters, they've kind of gotten onto this. So the, in, in the previous days, the idea was called ghosting, where you would just steal uh, information from a recently deceased person and maybe look at their bank account, et cetera. But recently what's been happening is that they've been using these individual social security numbers and then tying it to uh, the data that's been stolen to create uh, synthetic IDs. So they would basically... Take the social security number, come up with a name, an address, use a date of birth, and then with the recent technologies around deep fakes, you can also attach a photo to it. And so all of that would be used to create let's say an ID, and that ID would be used for for very nefarious purposes
1: hmm. and And so what are your recommendations for folks to protect themselves against this?
0: So first of all, like if you um, the second area where these fraudsters get social security numbers are from from recently born kids, so you know you, you have a kid who's got just got born. They have a social security attached to it. What I would recommend there is actually set up a bank account for, for for these kids up front. So as soon as they have a bank account, then they become part of the system. Whereas for recently deceased, you should really look at just filing all the paperwork that are relevant and making sure that you know uh, notifying all all of the different companies that uh, maybe use utilizing that particular. Uh, individual's assets and for companies that are trying to onboard individuals that look like fraudsters you typically want to ask for their id to kind of look at so what my what we do is you know we have the capability of reading an identity card or driver's license and tell you to a certain extent if it's fake or not but then also asking for their selfie and and the selfie brings two pieces of the puzzle the first one is we can actually check to see if the person's live at the at the time when they're enrolling for a new account, but also after the selfie's taken, match the photo to the actual selfie that was just recently taken before you set up the account. So those are kind of the things that I would recommend.
1: Now, what happens to the families of uh, these deceased people who get their identities taken over? Can I mean, can the the, the spending sprees of these crooks come back to haunt them?
0: So typically in the synthetic world now we're dealing uh, strictly in the synthetic identities. It's really a victimless crime because they've stayed, they've taken stolen information from various disparate parties and even made some stuff up. So really the victims are going to be first of all you know if you are a uh, let's say just a recent grad or an immigrant then potentially you may be asked to provide extra documentation, and or you may be given a loan, but at a higher interest rate amount. Typically, these these cases last, you know, they're not done overnight. You're ticking 12 to 15 to, to two years. So they're very crafty done by, you know, very, very hardened criminals. And they're going to wait the long game to, to kind of take advantage of this.
2: That's Sanjay Gupta from Meet
1: And I'm joined once again by Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief analyst and chief security officer, but more important than either of those things, he is the host of the CSO Perspectives podcast. Rick, great to have you back. Thank you, sir. Uh, So you've had quite a season with uh, CSO Perspectives and you're wrapping up your first season of the show. Uh, How are you uh, wrapping things up in a bow for your listeners this week?
3: Well, you know, it's been quite a ride. We really didn't know what this thing was going to turn out to be. You know, we had some vague idea. And most of the shows, well, at least some of the first shows started out as, you know, things that Rick was interested in. Right. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. um, it finally kind of focused down into trying to figure out what do I think is kind of a unified theory of information security using first principles. And we've gone through Uh, a number of shows that talked about that. We talked about Zero Trust, we talked about Intrusion Kill Chains, Resilience, DevSecOps, Risk, and Cyber Threat Intelligence. This uh, last episode to summarize the season is gonna hit those uh, points uh, at a high level and talk about why we need a unified theory as opposed to like maybe one of the uh, famous frameworks like the NIST cybersecurity framework, which by the Mm -hmm. way, I love, but it's not really a unified theory. Well, it's an ambitious goal. Uh, Can you give us a little preview of what you're aiming at here? Yeah, because, you know, the the NIST framework is fantastic, by the way. Let me just say that. Okay, it's probably one of the best examples of a public-private research program. NIST ran it, and then they brought in everybody from the academic community and from the commercial sector to figure out what everybody was doing in cybersecurity and, and to identify what the best practices were. And it is a fantastic research document. But the thing I'm going to point out in this show is, yes, it is it is a, a great example of what everybody is doing. But the question is, are those the things we should be doing, right? And I'm challenging that in this episode.
1: Hmm. All right. Can you give us a little sneak peek? Uh, what sort of things are you going to recommend?
3: Well, when we think about what's important, we try to get down to the essence of, you know, what we're trying to do for our program. That's why we bring in first principles, this idea of first principles has been around for, you know, long, long time. And, but even famous people like Elon Musk kind of use it to, uh, to design their programs, right? And the idea is, in order to build some big framework, the thing you have to identify first is what are you trying to do? You need to find the atomic element of mm-hmm. the thing you're trying to accomplish and then build up from there. And until you find that first principle, it's very difficult to come up with a framework. Now, don't get me wrong, the NIST cybersecurity framework has all the elements of a great InfoSec program. If you try to manage that, I think you will have a great program. But what I'm trying to uh, make sure is that we don't have any inconsistencies, right? Uh, there was a famous story back in the uh, early 1900s. The math community had a problem, okay? they You could get the a different answer using the accepted best practices, the accepted rules in the math community. You can get a different answer. They called it... The Russell Paradox. And these two uh, British mathematicians uh, spent wrote a huge book to rebuild the math community from the ground up using first principles again. So I'm trying to get at that in this last episode.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me. Wasn't there a a thing back, I want to say back in the Pentium days, the computers were... Like depending on which processor you asked a particular math question to, you might get a slightly different answer. Yeah, that's right. Because they remember were trying that? to
3: preload it. Yeah, I do remember that. It's like, oh yeah. wait, maybe that's not <laughs> precise <laughs> enough. Right. It's like the one thing we thought computers were good at. Right. Like a one yeah. thing. Yeah. Getting the same answer over and over again. Home. Oh, maybe that's. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of what yeah. we're talking about here, right? So, how do yeah. you make sure your the results you get in your RefleSec program is consistent?
1: Yeah. All right, well, the show is CSO Perspectives. Head on over to theCyberWire.com. You can find out how to subscribe. Rick Howard, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. And that's The CyberWire.